Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with mo modern days unipolarity is precisely like that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. Welcome to Multipolarity. This may not be the voice you're expecting. I'm Gavin Haynes. I produce the show. And the reason I produced the show is, Philip Pilkington, that I met you at a party some three months ago, and you explained to me that you were doing a podcast. You explained to me that it was a, with a man from the internet called Andrew Collingwood. And I said, that sounds like a great idea. Why don't I produce your show? Is that your recollection of events? Yeah, I think there was some alcohol involved as well, but we probably won't talk about that. And, and how would you say it's gone so far? I think it's gone pretty well. I mean, hats off for trusting a random guy who walked up to you at a party <laughs> for a podcast with a random internet guy. But uh, yeah, I think I think given the given how to shake it out, yeah, it's it's going great. I'm I'm very happy with it. Are you? I think so. Yeah, I sort of work in pod. I work in big pod, but I was looking for something to do, which seemed like it it might take me a bit more. Not quite front of house, but less on the development side and more on the production side. And this angel strode into my life in the middle of the unheard cafe opening party and said that he'd like geopolitics and economics too, and that this was a, this was actually a thing that was happening in the world, and it seemed very timely. And very timely, it has proved this is not quite my world. I do have a vague background in this world. So it's been very interesting to me to kind of open the throttle on geopolitics and this whole discourse that is becoming ever more salient by the day, it seems. So, you know, your idea was right, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I've been vindicated. I think we've been vindicated because it wasn't just my idea. Andrew <laughs> Collingwood and I were Mod uh, modestly speaking there. Yeah. Well, I think, I think we've sort of talked a lot about my part in this, but it does predate me. So, Andrew Collingwood, you met Philip on the internet. A, a, a very uh, modern and, relationship. Via uh, Twitter spaces, <laughs> yeah, that went viral and, as it was sold to me, was picked up at a Treasury Select Committee. Well, that's right. I had been retweeting a lot of Philip's sage-like and wise tweets and I had also at the time been doing semi-regular spaces on Saturday evenings, which I thought were great. And I still do, actually. You get a really good audience participation on the spaces. And one thing I've always found with them is that the questions that listeners ask are far better than you might imagine. It kind of restores your faith in the interested citizen, I would say. And I invited Philip to one of the spaces to discuss economic matters. And we ended up just chatting for about two and a half hours on that space. And I think both of us could have gone for another couple of hours in addition to that. And we spoke about maybe making it a regular thing through a podcast. And then Philip brought you on board, which was a big bonus because God knows how unprofessional it would be without you to edit our ramblings into a coherent 45-minute or one-hour podcast every week, Gavin. But yeah, I think it's gone well. I mean, the, the point of multipolarity is that as the world shifts towards a multipolar world, 
the economic and geopolitical consequences of that will become much more visceral and they'll start washing over the Western world, which for the last 30 years or so has been somewhat detached from geopolitics and has had a very specific economic model. And these changes are going to be big. They're going to cause a great deal of issues. There'll be violence and wars, as we're already seeing. But there'll also be a great deal of economic upheaval. And I think as this progresses, multipolarity as a podcast will get more and more relevant. And we kind of have some plans somewhere in the background for for future editions. I know when we first started talking, there was the idea that we would do some special eds on big topics. The schism between the Catholic and the Orthodox Church was one and how that rolls through history. We have a, f- a first guest interview coming up, which is with Sam Berger of Bismarck Analysis. What other horizons do you think this show can touch uh, as, as it goes forward? Yeah, I think we should do these big topical episodes. I think they'd be very interesting. I think another one that we were thinking about was kind of, you know, demographics or, you know, we might do one on on some of the more academic theories of international relations, geopolitics, that kind of thing. Maybe even something on on academic economics. I think these kind of big topics would would be really interesting and they kind of, you know, get us away from the news cycle a little bit and provide maybe some of the kind of conceptual framing for what we're dealing with. So I'd be excited to do them at some point, maybe sooner rather than later. I think we're starting to get enough momentum now that we could we could start considering doing them. Yeah, I agree. I think that now that we have a regular following, we're starting to really trend upwards on the listener scale. It seems to me a good time to start introducing the occasional special episode where we can really dive deeply into certain areas that we've perhaps touched on in previous podcasts, but deserve a much longer and more detailed hearing. Demographics is one. I think Philip's suggestion of the the Orthodox Catholic schism is a fascinating one and would no doubt be hugely educational for me. But there are also other areas as well we've spoken in the past about the changing face of logistics routes around the world and how that impacts culture and international relations and geostrategy of various nations. I think that would be a very interesting one. So in addition to the interviews, and I think we've also, in addition to Samo Buria, who is a you know very interesting guy and one of the preeminent thinkers, I would say, on this, on the areas that we cover. So I think this is all going to be extremely interesting. And as I said before, as these issues become more and more prominent and become more and more difficult to avoid, and the the, the frequency at which they affect lives in the Western world increase, then the podcast can become more and more relevant and we can move into an increasing number of interesting areas for listeners. There was definitely a scheme at one point to create tea towels and merchandise around shipping choke points. Uh, I don't oh, know quite don't, where don't, we've ended don't up with that. Don't tell anybody that. that that's, <laughs> that's an amazing idea. Some some entrepreneurial minded listener will steal it from us. But merch is definitely a great idea, and I, I, I think we have an idea for merchandise. Once perhaps the podcast gets a little bit bigger, that we can that. Won't I find with a lot of podcasts or a lot of YouTube channels when they do merchandise, it's kind of like fan merchandise. Whereas I think that we we have ideas for merchandise that would be cool for people who are interested in economics, that are interested in geostrategy, and that are interested in the 
changing framework by which the, the, the changing world order, I should say. Um, so yeah, that is also something to look out for in the future. Perhaps when we get to podcast 40 or 50, we could launch some super cool merch. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're 10 deep. It feels like a long journey, but actually it's, it's still only the foothills of, of something. And I, as we as we came to press, we were being retweeted by J.D. Vance, no less an, an iconoclastic hillbilly. Than, Actually, than Gavin, if I may say, perhaps we could ask listeners for their reaction on another idea that we had. We were speaking last week about setting up a substack. And on that substack, we would provide maybe three times a week, something in that vicinity essentially a brief for subscribers to our Substack that would give them a kind of digest of the sort of things that Philip and I read on the multipolarity, in, within the multipolarity sphere, the sort of news issues that are happening, interpretation and, and, and kind of brief analysis of the news. But I would be interested to hear feedback from any listeners if they want to put in the comment section of YouTube, if they're listening on YouTube or perhaps one of their own podcast apps or clients, or maybe even just write to us or tag us on Twitter. I'd be delighted to hear whether they'd be interested in a, a substack that, as I say, would give them a kind of multipolarity brief. Obviously, it would involve a fair bit of work. But if people are keen on it, I'd be very much willing to do it. I mean, you have an absolutely sort of dynamo work rate in terms of your your press output. Although I did, I picked up Bornbrook magazine today. Well, they sent it to me in the post now, and you didn't have anything in this month's edition. I have a very long article about the uh, destruction of Nord Stream, actually, and it's it's going to top out at about five thousand words, and it it basically gives a a potted history of Nord Stream and looks at some of the press and media failings on their reporting, both the reasons that it was planned and built, but more importantly, the failings of their reporting on its destruction. And really, given how important a, a, a free and investigative media is for a liberal democracy, because as much as a lot of people criticize the press, they do have an important role to play. I think it's 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 important that we kind of pick them up on this sort of thing. Absolutely, yeah. So one thing, given that this is a, a special edition, I always kind of clean up the endings of multipolarity and, and ask the pair of you to stop begging our listeners to leave reviews and subscribe on TikTok, etc. But I think this is probably the moment where we can collectively beg and you know solicit our listeners to engage with us and leave some reviews in the iTunes store that would actually be a great help it seems like there are a lot of people out there through an informal network who enjoy the show could you help other people find us yeah i mean it must be tempting right for your average listener to listen to multipolarity and then not and then not tell anybody however we don't ask for money at multipolarity we don't have a subscription fee yet anyway and so what you can do to support the podcast, if you like listening to it, let people know about multipolarity, share the links, tag us in posts, retweet our tweets. You can subscribe to our, or you can follow our Twitter account, which is at multipolar pod. So that's at multipolar pod. So 
follow that account and let people know share the share the joy share the links press the like button press the subscribe button and comment let us know what you think and we have had a really curious and thoughtful post bag ever since we sent out our shout out for questions about 10 days ago there are about eight questions i think that we have to get through now all from genuine listeners when you send something out into the ether like that you could very easily come back with with nothing at all but the rest of the episode is going to be me reading out the questions to these two and coming up with answers on the fly. So the first question comes from no less a figure than the Eugene Professor of Computer Science at Princeton University, who is Bernard Chazelle. And he says, it's quite a long question. Dear sirs, thank you for your podcast, which I enjoy greatly. It seems to me a major element in a future conflict between China and the US would be the political capacity of absorbing heavy casualties as we're seeing now in Ukraine. China would regard a war over Taiwan as existential, so its casualty tolerance would be essentially unbounded. But how would a US president justify to its citizens the loss of, say, 50,000 sailors in two weeks for a fight over a place most Americans can't locate on a map? The US hasn't fought a heavy casualty war since World War II. Would it be able to do so in order to save not its existence, but its hegemonic status? I wonder if that wouldn't be the decisive factor in determining the outcome of a China-US conflict. I'd love to hear your views on the issue. Mr. Collingwood, I think you are the best place to answer this question. Well, I think 50,000 sailors is probably a little bit too high. The US aircraft carrier has about 5,000 sailors on it, and it's unlikely that the US would lose all 10 of its aircraft carriers. But I could well imagine a conflict with China very quickly leading to tens of thousands of deaths. So, And I I think the two-week time period for that isn't beyond the bounds of reason in the event that the US and China get involved in a direct war, a full-blown war with each other. I think, though, that while the prospect of such casualties would create, at the very least, caution within whichever US presidential administration was in charge when deciding whether to go to war with China or not... Once the shooting starts, generally the trend in war is that high losses, rather than sickening a population and pushing them towards surrender, has the opposite effect. And in fact, they tend to lead to even greater and more expanded war aims. I think that once you know, it's quite possible to imagine the U.S. losing ten thousand men in a day or two, given the given the numbers of Chinese missiles, given the range of targets they could attack. I mean, Okinawa has goodness knows how many U.S. Marines and airmen. Guam would no doubt come under attack. Bases in the Philippines would no doubt come under attack, as well as U.S. Navy surface and submarine assets. So. It's really within the realms of possibility that the US could have a shocking death toll after a week or two. I think, though, that that would tend to lead to more, uh, I wouldn't say enthusiasm for the war, but more determination to win it, because there would be very much an idea that, you know, we can't retreat now that we've suffered so many losses. That can't be for nothing. 
and patriotism and patriotic feeling would very much come to the fore in in circumstances where the whole nation was sharing in grief. I think I'm a little bit more skeptical of this than Andrew. I know that Andrew, as a as a matter of course, tries to avoid American politics. It's a written rule for him, as far as I understand it. I I am pretty plugged in on the American politics stuff, and I think the country would have a very very hard time with this. The country has changed a lot since the Cold War. I mean, famously, John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I don't get the sense that that sentiment rides very high in America anymore. I don't mean that as a moral judgment. I just mean it as as a fact. It's a very consumerist society, more so than Western Europe more so than Britain. And people really are focused on their day-to-day. It's also a, a place that's very insulated from the rest of the world. I, I think it, it had some outward-looking tendencies during the Cold War, but I think those have kind of retreated since then. Most people in America who are politically interested, genuinely politically interested people who watch the news every day or the cable news channels or whatever, they don't think about foreign policy that much. They don't care about it that much. It doesn't show up very high on polls. And it it mainly seems to be seen as an irritation these days. And I just think it will be borderline impossible to sell those losses to the American people, especially for something that they don't really understand. I think it would also quickly result in, in a protest movement forming. I think what, what listeners who aren't as familiar with American politics need to understand is that everything in America is partisan now because it's become such a divided society. And the war in Ukraine has been sold to the public because basically because Russia, any sort of not pro-Russian, but any sort of Russian tolerance has long been associated with the political right, especially with the figure of Donald Trump. While China tolerance, as it were, has long been associated with the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party and the kind of liberal view of the world is how most people see themselves in America, at least most people in the elite. So selling the Ukraine war had as one component that you were attacking Russia, which was associated with the political right and with these election interference to get Donald Trump elected and so on. And also, it doesn't cost any direct American lives, at least nobody officially in uniform. Selling selling the, the China, a war with China where there are people in uniform and the people that you're... The people that you're trying to convince at that point, to my mind, seem like Democrats. You're, you're, the, 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 the average Democrat is a lot less scared or skeptical of China than they are of Russia. And yeah, and this would be the these would be the kind of groups that would be able to put together the sort of protest movement that you saw on the in, in the wake of the invasion of Iraq. Okay, well, thank you very much for that, and thank you, Bernard, for your question. Let's move on from that extraordinary death toll in the tens of thousands, and onto a figure called Diplomatico Number Two, who tweets under Heiligerook. Uh, is that Dutch? I love the podcast. What do you think the new multipolar world means for living standards in Europe slash USA? Or in other words, what will it mean for Westerners across their lives when the rubber hits the road on the shift, by which it means the shift to multipolarity? Philip, you are generally known as uh, Captain Optimist. Do you have anything to, to add on this one? Yeah, I mean, yeah, come on, okay, Dr. Well, Doom, let's hear some the first sunshine. Thing, okay, you're not going to get any sunshine out of me, not today. 
But no, I, I, I think I think you can give a fairly balanced answer to this. First of all, the West will definitely lose in relative terms living standards, but that's more so a reflection that the developing world is and will continue to catch up to the West. That is a certainty that is not going to change. Now, in absolute terms, could living standards fall for the West? Yes, they could. But they will only fall if this transition is mismanaged. The problem is that I think, and I think we think on the podcast, that there is a lot of evidence that the transition is being mismanaged. And if it is mismanaged, it means that we will start to, you know, engage in trade wars and so on without fully understanding that we are far more dependent on the countries that we launch the trade wars against than they are on us. They send us the stuff, we send them paper money effectively that's not really worth anything. Now, that's good for their economic growth, it's good for their export industry, but ultimately we're just giving them paper money. And it's not even paper at this stage. At this stage, it's little entries on a balance sheet at the central bank. It's just electrons. That's all we're sending. I'm not, I'm not saying we don't send them anything, that we, we don't trade with them at all, but on a relative trade balance terms, that's what we're doing. We're also heavily in debt to these countries. So if we try and pick a fight with them, my fear is that our absolute living standards will fall. And what that will look like is quite simply a long period of either an inflationary recession or, if things got really bad, an inflationary depression. And that would be one in which nominal wages were either fixed or they were even falling slightly, and inflation was eroding living standards. Now, if that sounds familiar, it might because we're halfway there, if anyone's noticed. There's no economic growth. We're facing down a recession, and inflation's still riding high. And even if inflation comes down from where it is currently, if we get a recession with inflation still chugging along at 4%, that's, that's going to eat away at living standards. So this is already kind of happening, but it's up to us. It's up to our leaders to decide, do we really want to try and dig in here and launch trade wars all over the place and have more geopolitical disruptions? If we do want to do that, then our absolute living standards will fall. If we become more flexible and pragmatic in the way that we approach the world, we should be able to maintain and even grow our absolute living standards while losing our relative superiority to the rest of the world. But ultimately, the average Joe doesn't care about the relative picture. Only, only our leaders care about that because they fret about a loss of power in the world. But that's an inevitability. So it's really up in the air. It's, it's, it's what we choose to do from here on in. Just to sort of frame Pilkintonian economics, it seems to me that's a big bone of what you talk about, think about, write about, is this idea that, that we have misunderstood our relative position to other parts of the world and that we, you know, it, there is this managed transition coming but you seem to be almost poking towards a note of optimism there in that there is a there is a pathway to a soft landing and and by your view that pathway comes through fully recognizing what it is we're engaged with yeah so i mean obviously the point here is to put the multipolarity podcast firmly at the center of the discussion if everybody listens to multipolarity and buys our arguments and stops acting silly in the way that they make their geostrategy and economic policy, then we'll all be prosperous. So really, 
It's all about how many subscribers Multipolarity Podcast gets. If we get more subscribers, our living statue's too full. If we if we don't, if we don't get the subscribers, then everyone's gonna be poor. It's that's pretty much it. Well, I just I'd like to add a geopolitical edge to this that at the moment the West enjoys a certain advantage in that most of the trading rules, most of the international institutions and a great many long-standing bilateral and multilateral trade agreements have been dictated by the West. They've been arranged by the West, and they've been arranged for its benefit. If the West mismanages the transition to a multipolar world, if it attempts in an effort to prevent the transition from a, a unipolar to a multipolar world, if in that effort it tries to draw matters to a point and it then loses that conflict, then what very quickly you'll find by process of diplomatic tour de force is probably China, but perhaps other countries as well, start either completely rewriting or uh, current diplomatic and, uh, and multilateral rules or starting up their own more powerful institutions and you know because china would be then in control of a much larger portion or, or, or dominant over a much larger portion of the global economy than the u.s countries would naturally gravitate toward that they would set up their trading arrangements and thus their economies to deal with china over the u.s and europe and by making a mess of the geopolitics in the end the US and Europe would no longer be term setters, they would be terms takers. And obviously those terms would be set up more to the advantage of other nations. That doesn't mean that China rules the world. That doesn't mean that China usurps the US entirely. Obviously, the United States, even if it was thrust out entirely of Western Pacific or Eastern Asia, whichever way you want to talk about it, it would still be a massively powerful nation. Europe would be an extremely large economy with a, a, a big population. It would just mean that they wouldn't be able to dictate terms in the way that they had. And when, it, when they've been able to dictate terms, they've been able to set up those terms, both in terms of trade, in terms of defense cooperation, in terms of diplomatic relations to their own advantage. And that would no longer necessarily be the case. There would be a, you know, there would be alternatives and perhaps quite hostile uh, poles within the world. So if it fails to manage this process and it tries to bring matters to a head and then it loses that conflict, then again, the, the, there would be a geopolitical impetus towards squeezing relative living standards compared to what they could have been. Well, it's nice to know that there is some world in which the West can just you know, go about our, our hobbit lives and mainly butt out of the of the rise of china and you know perhaps yeah come away with i don't know or even better, shock horror better video projectors without having to you know sacrifice 10,000 us marine lives in the morning yeah of course well, i mean we could profit from the rise of china but not only that we could compete with them we could focus on our own research and development our own industry you know we could do all of these things to address some of the some of the problems of the last 20 years some of the problems created by the kind of neoliberal framework for globalism we can address some of those problems and 
By doing that, we can profit from the competition. We can profit from trade trade with China and trade with Indonesia and trade with India. And we can do that in a way that benefits the whole population rather than a tiny sliver. So there is a very positive way of looking at this. Yeah, I'm, I'm always slightly in, intrigued as to what multipolarity's position is on on free trade. You know, it seems that at once we're very aware of how trade raises all, all boats and if you don't trade you lose but also you know that that it seems that there's been a lot of foolish neoliberalism done in the last 20 years and concentrating on our on our specialisms I guess is Ricardian comparative advantage is there anything that we need to do beyond that I do think that the West has gone about globalism in a blasé way i would say they've been indifferent to the nature of the competition they faced they've been indifferent to ensuring that national and and local industries have a degree of protection they've been indifferent to fostering competitiveness okay the asian countries that have been extremely successful and made great hay out of globalization have had governments which are very focused on creating competitiveness. So it's Ricardian comparative advantage, but it's what we could have Ricardian comparative advantage in. South Korea didn't have a comparative advantage in making cars when the you know, at the beginning of GATT, when it first signed up for GATT, right? It, it, it didn't have a comparative advantage of making flat screen monitors and televisions. No, it's built, it's really focused on those sort of things in terms of research and development, in terms of the education system, in terms of the way it's set up its industry. And by doing that, they've been tremendously successful. In the West, we've been indifferent to that. So while, yes, we should perhaps trade, you know, we should also look at the way that we trade. I think it's the framework of globalization that's perhaps gone wrong. One of the joys of Twitter is that you have to entertain questions from people like Eat My Shorts, who tweets at Coco Loba EMS. Eat My Shorts says, what's the bull case for China if their belt and road materializes into lots of underperforming loans? It's a pretty straightforward question. Philip, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I can't really see why they'd care. Belt and road is... Basically, you know, I suppose it's an investment initiative, but it's as much an aid initiative. That's how I see how the Chinese view it. Also, if there's a country in the world that doesn't care about racing ahead with investment and then letting the loans go sour, it's China. I mean, it's how their entire investment structure works. They invest in whatever. The loans go bad. The ones that, that don't work out go bad. And then they shake them into what are called asset management companies, which means something different there than it means here. And they're buried. They're, 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 they're sealed up in a barrel and buried at the bottom of the ocean, except the ocean in this case is, is a strange financial vehicle that's hidden at the bottom of the central bank basement or something like that. So I think China's, they don't care. They, 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 they view loans and money as a means to an end. It's a partial command economy. It's all factored in. I don't think they're in Belt and Road to try and make huge financial profits. I don't think they think about that. Does that differ from what the West does with those kinds of aid loans? I guess the West just doesn't do it at, at scale. 
Yeah, I mean, no, it's pretty much exactly the same thing. But you're right; they they don't they don't. I mean, as as China's gone Belt and Road, the hallowed halls of Western power have been discussing microfinance, <laughs> which is you give little loans to like farmers or something. It's yeah, they do macrofinance; we do microfinance these days. Sadly, we should do more macrofinance. Yeah, and the bottom line is that, uh, well, I mean, first of all, China's always shown a fair bit of willingness to restructure these loans, to increase the terms, to, to lengthen the repayment terms, for example, or to outright write down some of these loans. But in addition to that, the point is the infrastructure is still going to be there and the influence is still going to be there. I mean, if the loans go bad, it doesn't mean that the rail line that the loans built has disappeared. That's still going to be there and that's still useful for China from a strategic point of view, if that's what the Belt and Road was for. So, you know, ultimately, the the theory is, I, I don't know enough about internal Chinese politics to say if this is true, but the theory is that as Chinese leaders are a keen student of history, they looked at the 1930s US oil blockade on Japan, which threatened to bring the Japanese to their knees, and precipitated the attacks on Pearl Harbor and Singapore and the Philippines to capture the natural resources that the US had blockaded. The Chinese wanting to avoid that kind of devil's alternative, going to war with the United States or being brought to its knees, has attempted to create the Belt and Road Initiative, which primarily has involved inland logistics routes across the Eurasian landmass towards its key markets in Europe, as well as a string of pearls, a string of ports across the Indian Ocean as far as the Middle East for its oil. And if all of those loans go bad, then that logistics stuff is still there and available for the Chinese to, to, to use, right? So I'm, I'm not altogether certain that the whole Belt and Road bad loan story is a, a particularly important or big one. I think it's often used by Western media to kind of paint China as a, a, a kind of a loan shark who deliberately gets third world countries into debts that they can't afford to pay back. But I'm not sure it's a big deal. So the, the questions come in from Jurica Kovac, uh, which is, is Poland on the path of becoming the undisputed heavyweight in the Eastern European Union? Philip, you caused a stir online, some would say, others would say you were set upon by angry Poles because you, I guess, made an intervention about the Polish budget and whether their levels of defence spending were, were sustainable in the long term. Do you still think that's the case? Do you think Poland can be a regional hegemon? Do you think the Eastern European Union will ever have a dominant state? In terms of the military spending, it is quite high. I mean, I can understand why the Poles want to do it. Obviously, there's some rather bad blood there with Russia, has been for a long time. And, you know, the Ukraine war is probably scary to Poland, given that it's on their border, although it's only sort of on their border because it hasn't really spread into the West. So I don't really envy them the, the desire to bulk up their military. But the, the question is whether going really all in on this and, you know, spending with this view to be the kind of key regional player, a lot of talk about expanding the intermarium and stuff like that, whether this is, I guess, prudent, wise, call it whatever you want. 
I personally think it's putting a lot of eggs in one basket. The spending levels are very high. Poland is not a particularly rich country. There is already inflationary pressures. There, there is still an energy crisis in Poland, as there is in the rest of Europe. Ramping up military spending in the face of those things can be kind of dangerous. Also, you know, right now, Poland's getting a lot of wind in its sails because America is very interested in the region due to Ukraine. But frankly, after the war, I think it's expected that the U.S. will become less interested in the region and it'll become less interested in Europe as it pivots toward Asia-Pacific region. So, you know, Poland have put all their eggs in the ba- in one basket here, and I will be a little bit concerned that the basket falls on the ground and a few eggs break. In terms of it becoming a regional power, I can't really see it. I mean, it's not a very wealthy country. Its diplomatic ties with Europe have always been a little bit haphazard. There used to be very strong ties. Well, I suppose there still are very strong ties in the Visegrad group, which is dominated by Poland and Hungary. But Poland and Hungary have taken polar opposite sides on the war question. And although you know they still have good relations, I think probably it, it hasn't been great for relations you know, in general between the two countries. So I, I just can't really see... Why a relatively, you know, not very wealthy country that doesn't have any special industry or anything like that can suddenly become a regional power. I'm a little bit more sanguine than Philip on Poland's chances. The first thing to understand is that Poland is in a very dangerous part of the world and is not blessed by geography. It's surrounded or it's sandwiched between the two traditional and ancient 800-pound gorillas of the western end of the Eurasian landmass, Germany and Russia. It is situated on flat land. It doesn't have an alpine mountain range or a sea or an ocean or a desert or jungle to block invaders. And for this reason, and not once but twice in the last few hundred years, it's been wiped off the map entirely. Uh, first of all, through the Russo-Prussian of Poland, which the Austro-Hungarian Empire did in, but latterly through the Soviet Empire, where it became essentially a satellite state of the Soviet Union and had its borders shifted quite a way west. So... I think Poland almost has to go, has to try to expand its power, has to try to build up its military for the same reason it really after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the collapse of the Soviet Empire, had to join NATO and the European Union. I think now it has to really try to expand its power through diplomatic ties, through becoming the the major military power within the region. And I think there are fairly good opportunities for Poland to achieve that. Philip is, of course, right that the financial things of, side of things are quite precarious. But as the United States retreats from Europe, as ultimately it probably will, eventually the you know the realities of the American situation, its need to balance against China, will trump the ideology of the neocons who are really fixated on Russia and Eastern Europe. As America withdraws, what it'll try to do, I believe, is replace physical troops and materiel with support, financial support, and probably technology transfer support for key allies within the region. And what it'll do is it'll select those key allies based on their existing capacity. And I think 
really there's only one game in town for that and and, and that's Poland. So I think in a way what Poland can do is it can import arms and technology and it can export geostrategic usefulness. That's going to be the deal from here and it, and it can kind of cover the gap in its financing and perhaps its current account with its usefulness to to outside powers. And, you know, in terms of expanding through Visegrad or the Intermarium, which is a kind of a reimagination of a classic Polish idea to create a block between the, the Baltic and the Black Seas and the, the, the Baltic, the Black and the Adriatic Seas to to that that would be able to counter the size and the scale of Germany and Russia. As for that, you know, we have to remember that this is a relative game. You know, Poland might not be a particularly rich or large country, but it's recently had a large influx of Ukrainian refugees who are culturally and linguistically reasonably similar to Poland. And in addition to that, it's relatively much stronger than most of the countries to its south. So most of the countries in in central and, and, and southern Eastern Europe it is much stronger than those countries. And it would be natural that, you know, it's never going to create an actual empire in the old-fashioned sense of the word, but it would be natural that such a block could be led by Poland and, and, and with a little bit of give and take, Poland could be the leading power in such a block and benefit from that. So I'm a little bit more sanguine than Philip, but of course, these things are very fraught, as Poland has shown multiple times in the past. Yes, it tends to come and go, Poland. The next question comes from Francisco40231 on Twitter. Francisco says, how likely is it that the US is headed towards an impossible situation regarding interest rates? If rates go up, everything starts to break, as seems to be starting to happen. If rates go down, inflation starts to accelerate. Yeah, I'd, I'd say we're already in the impossible situation. I think I wrote something about this for Newsweek. Jeez, it must be 18 months ago or something like that. Zero interest rate policies are like a you know, crack habit or something like that. The whole economy is addicted to them. They probably were never wise to begin with. Did they even promote that much growth? I don't really think so. I don't think dropping the interest rate any lower, lower pumping all this money did actually that much for growth. So the, the whole economy got addicted to these things. And I think the assumption from the policymakers in the central bank was we'd never see inflation again. And what we've learned is never say never because now we've seen inflation again. And, and so, yeah, monetary policy in the in the West is clearly stuck. Not really clear what the outcome of that's going to be. They may just have to kind of you know, rip the plaster off, trash the whole financial system, generate a recession and try and get the the financial system back to back to normal and and being capable of dealing with, you know, a normal plus three, plus four percent rate of interest. But yeah, we're already in the impossible situation. Yeah, that much is apparent. The inflation is still quite high in the US. There's still plenty of liquidity, it seems, sloshing around the money markets and yeah, we're already seeing banks going to the wall and uh, the financial sector in general squealing with pain. The other question, of course, is that the ECB is still raising interest rates as well. And Kian banks, as is well known, are far from safe and secure. So that might be another shoe to drop. But I agree 100% with Philip. It's an extremely awkward situation. Will they go the Paul Volcker direction and just 
in the words of Paul Krugman, increase interest rates until Volcker decided that the economy had had enough? Or will they accept a reasonable, a reasonable amount of a fairly high level of inflation to save the financial sector? Who knows? But this is really in devil's alternative territory now, I would say. We have a question from longtime friend of the pod, regular commenter, Roger Hesketh, who I believe is something to do with the SDP that you're a part of, Andrew. Anyway, Roger says, do you think this was this question was written slightly before the events of March 20th when Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin met in Moscow? He says, do you think Xi Jinping will bring an oven-ready peace deal to Moscow next week? Do you think Presidents Putin and Zelensky would be agreeable to entertaining the notion? And do you think the latter would be allowed to? For what it's worth, I think any text will have had prior Moscow approval. Uh, and the latest, as, as I understand it, is that uh, Xi Jinping did come with something that, that was oven ready. And Andrew, perhaps you know more about the status of that and you know wh- where it sits on the diplomatic chessboard. Well, the simple answer to this is, and we can be very brief about this, it doesn't matter what is in the peace deal. The United States has already said that it's going to reject that peace deal. The senior members of the Biden administration have said that any peace deal proposed by China is unacceptable. And that's that. And this would be the second time now, I guess, if Russia is very keen on this, it would be the second time that the US had guppered a peace deal at a you know various stages of negotiation. It did so uh, in spring last year as well. And here we are again. The bottom line is that the war will only end when the US says the war is going to end. And that's really that. So it doesn't really matter what's in the peace deal, but that's the bottom line. And I'm afraid, sad to say that Mr. Zelensky and his fellow travelers in Bangkok don't really seem to have much say in the matter. Yeah, I push back on that very slightly. The game of diplomatic and international relations is a reflexive game always is. So even rejecting things has consequences. And in this situation, the rejection has enormous consequences because the official position of the United States up until a few days ago was that a peace deal will happen when the Ukrainians want a peace deal. America coming out and saying, we will not accept a peace deal put on the table by China moves the chessboard, it moves the pieces around the board in, in, in so far as the United States position has changed. Officially, it has changed. And at the same time, when this, I, I don't know if, if the Ukrainian government has reacted to the, this peace deal this time, but when it was initially floated by the Chinese, Zelensky said he was open to looking at it. And while it's probably true that at the end of the day, the State Department makes a call on this, these kind of reflexive moves around the board can have a pressure of their own. So I, I wouldn't completely dismiss what's happened in the past few days. The, ter- the final thing to say is that is that the world is watching and China's putting a peace deal on the table and America is now explicitly rejecting that. That takes a lot of rhetorical ammo out of the out of out of America's toolbox. Terrible mixed metaphor. Probably ammunition belt would be the correct follow on metaphor. But so 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 even the fact that this probably won't go anywhere in the near term is having an impact of its own. And I don't think we should dismiss that. 
we have a question from Swamp Ghost, Swamp Ghost 32 on Twitter, who actually asked a multi-part question, but for concision's sake, we're going to take the first part of that question, which is bullet pointed one, situation in Mexico, particularly given the past week of headlines. I know nothing about the situation in Mexico, except that it is hot and pleasant. And what are the past week of headlines? Is this this something I should be concerned about, Andrew Collingwood? Well... What basically happened was a group of American lawmakers, a former general, got together and essentially announced that they were most unhappy with the way that the Mexican government has been dealing with the drug issue. Of course, vast quantity of drugs, especially really prominent ones like fentanyl, are smuggled across the Mexican border into the US, across the Rio Grande and cause untold problems in the United States. So these lawmakers had basically severely criticized the Mexican government for that. They had spoken about bringing legislation forward to label the Mexican drug cartels as organizations. They'd called for the greater use of American force and basically demanded that the Mexican government came to heel. Now, the first thing to say about this, it seems a little bit strange given that The Mexican government and the US already cooperate quite strongly on the drug issue. But secondly, I suspect it might have more to do with the fact that the AMLO government, which is short for the president's name, it has undertaken a series of steps recently that perhaps haven't gone down well with American corporates who obviously through NAFTA are quite heavily invested in Mexico. So things like increasing the minimum wage, enforcing food labeling laws, um, prohibiting the outsourcing of labor to third parties. They've looked to strengthen energy independence. They have put restrictions on the agribusiness, especially with relation to genetically modified crops. And they've even nationalized lithium deposits, which was a subject we spoke about in a previous episode of Multipolarity, that lithium is going to be a very important commodity in the coming decades. So all of those things have probably displeased the American government and lo, they are worried about the, uh, suddenly worried about the drug issue. I would say this though, ultimately probably Mexico and the US will come to an agreement. The US is so much more powerful than Mexico that, and you know, Mexico has no outside help. It doesn't have a kind of China or Russia at its back or something like that. So ultimately it probably has to come to an agreement with America and therefore probably will come to an agreement with America. One thing I would say about this as a word of warning for this kind of high-handed behavior, you know, we just had four years of Trump who used some pretty nasty, oafish language about Mexico. Now we have the the, the Biden administration, but a whole bunch of lawmakers, the, the usual suspects like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, using, again, pretty unpleasant language. One of them called Mexico a narco state. The reason why the US is so powerful in the world isn't just that it has a giant economy and a great strategic depth of natural resources and human resources and manufacturing and industry. It's also because it is surrounded in, uh, by two oceans, which really give it a lot of protection. And it's only two neighbors, Canada and the Mexico, are much smaller and actually, for various reasons, quite pacific. They're, they're not militaristic. They have fairly good relations with the United States. Now, if at some stage the US really had a falling out with Mexico, 
especially given the large number, the, 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 the huge diaspora of Mexicans within the United States, that would start to create an issue for the US where in its region, it wasn't 100% dominant and things weren't smooth sailing. And instead of being able to push all of its huge energies, both economic and diplomatic and martial and cultural, out into the world, it would suddenly have a, a, a border to be concerned about. So while the US is in a very strong position, and I fully expect the Mexican government to reach an agreement with the US on this, you know, a word of caution, the US can only push this so far uh, and then it starts creating problems and, and and quite big strategic problems at that. So to your point that that the there's a lot of Mexican diaspora in America, I think the president Lopez Obrador or AMLO, as he's often called, threatened to tell all the Mexican dual citizens there to vote Democrat if the Republicans kept up the rhetoric. So apparently Lopez Obrador is thinking in the same direction. I would have a little bit of a different view to this. The US-Mexico border has effectively collapsed, as far as I understand it. It's highly unstable. There are all sorts of things, drugs, human trafficking, so on, coming across the border. There could also be a lot of foreign espionage taking place in that. I think it is probably a national security risk for America. If America is justified in in intervening anywhere, it's probably here. That said, it probably is a bit of a bluff. There's been talk about this for a very long time. During the Trump administration, there was talk of this as well. But for now, I don't think it's on the table. To give some context, if the America did ever intervene, it would pretty much be a reversion to the mean of intervening in a in a way in Latin America consistent with the Monroe Doctrine and kind of you know harks back to the old drug wars in Colombia and so on. So, our final question of the night comes from Sokovac once again, who says, "Do you think in the coming decades the EU will dissolve and new blocs and alliances will form, or will the current system keep marching on?" One of the prominent demographers in my country proposed instituting a common health and pension system for the whole EU. Any chance of that? Yeah, I'm, I won't take a strong view on the common pension system and so on. I suppose that depends on <clears throat> the extent to which the EU continues to federalize. In terms of the EU's survival, I have to say I was pretty bearish about the EU until the war. I thought that it was kind of had a lot of flaws. I mean, all these kind of criticisms are well worn. The monetary union doesn't work properly. <clears throat> the The desire for a fed estate isn't actually very strong in most countries. But I think the war and the fragmentation of the world into a multipolar system has given the EU a new reason to exist. It does provide some sort of a bulwark against the rest, as it were. And seeing that Germany have pivoted to not accept America's desire to isolate China shows that this is still as you might say a live player it still it still has a part to play it, it can still do things independently if the EU were to break up at this stage I think it might not be able the, the current the, the countries currently in the EU might have a lot harder a time making those independent decisions in a multipolar world so I think it's kind of interesting coming from somebody who was until recently very skeptical of the EU to say that the EU now has a 
very real reason for existing. And for that reason, I expect it to continue and to stay together. And in fact, to find more and more reasons for its own existence as we move into the multipolar world and and alliances and relationships become more complex. I think it'll be a binding force for the EU and everyone in the EU will realize why it's important. Philip? Yeah, Philip's right. Look, it's clear that there are a great many underlying forces that are uh, driving EU countries away from each other, especially within the financial sector, especially with regard to unaligned economies and differently geared economies. There are real serious fundamental problems with the construction of the Eurozone. It's not an optimal currency area and it doesn't have any of the facets that optimal currency areas have, like a high degree of labor mobility by treasury, common benefits, common economic systems among regions. There are really a lot of forces that could you could easily imagine the EU causing the EU to fracture and shatter. And not only that, but it, it, it seems to have an austerity and deflationary bias within the EU that has caused a huge amount of pain across Grand Arc from Greece through the Mediterranean to Portugal and up to Ireland and even in France as well. Now, the point is, though, that it just keeps chugging along. It seems that the European elites are 100% bought into the European Union. Mostly the people seem to be as well. They, they dislike the rules. They dislike some of the issues that it causes economically. But they like the EU. There's a certain contradiction there. So the EU continues chugging along. And Philip's absolutely right that the split into a multipolar world really augments the 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 argument for sticking together within this ultimately very deep and very well in and, and very well integrated economic block it, it, it's the deepest and, and most integrated economic block anywhere in the world by a long way so that increases the issues i i, I would say though that once this horrible conflict is over on Europe's eastern approaches, the former issues, the former disagreements are going to start reasserting themselves, whether caused by the weak financial sector within the EU, the differently geared economies and austerity bias within the EU, some of the overweening aspects of Brussels getting involved in national business that really don't necessarily concern those and tend to grate against member states, but also things like who picks up the bill for the rebuild of Ukraine? How far should we expand? Should we now suddenly bring Ukraine and all of the Baltic nations within the EU? Is, is that something that we're going to do? Uh, but also now, you know, once the war is over and they don't necessarily need Poland so much, is is the kind of the high-handed, imperious nature of the European, of the European Court of Justice, and and Brussels going to start creating issues with Poland again because of some of its issues with the way it runs its judiciary and and the way it runs its media. So we have all of these issues, and and, and they will re-establish themselves. And for a long time, I've thought that the EU was untenable, but it keeps chugging along and. I think it might be time to reassess my view of that, especially given what Philip says about the coming multipolar world order, raising the arguments or, or improving the or strengthening the arguments for the EU to stick together. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how quickly that has changed. I mean, five years ago, people were talking about 
I don't know, a sort of a, a, a German rump or these sort of vassal states of the East. And Germany has had a very mixed war in terms of the Ukraine conflict, but it, it seems to have come out stronger and more central in, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think, by the way, it, it's entirely possible to imagine that in 20 years' time, there would be something pretty much along the borders of the Holy Roman. So if you, if you imagine those kind of areas, France really needs for long-standing and, and well-understood geopolitical reasons to cleave closely to Germany. And it's one of the things that Brexit negotiate, British negotiators during Brexit could never understand, that Germany and France stuck together, that the single market was much more important than Germany than the British market. And well, there are some kind of issues of that. France nat- is naturally drawn toward North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, and you see that frequently all of the time. What's important to Germany is its supply chain and, and, and making sure that markets are open for its excess production. Poland has its own issues, and we spoke earlier on about the kind of the dream of the intermarium, uh, not a not not a traditional empire, but what we might call a postmodern empire might be a goal for Poland. So it is entirely possible to imagine a blocks emerging. I just don't see it anytime soon. Mm. I would just at this point like to thank all of the people who've submitted questions. It was a it was a rich response and an embarrassment of riches. And to point to a few people whose questions we haven't had time to read out, unfortunately, and partly because they uh, were things that we covered on past podcasts or that we're going to cover on future podcasts. So I would just shout out to Peter Ryan, to Jibber Jab, to Simpol, and that's your lot, really. Everyone else is everyone else got a shout. I would like to turn to the two hosts, and I guess we were sort of trying to think of what would be a, a, a suitably silly ending for this special edition. And I think, Andrew, I wanted to ask you what your favourite armament was. And Philip, I guess I wanted to know what your favourite economy is. <laughs> My favourite armament, I, I suppose. I think earlier I was trying to think... I, I didn't expect you to ask me this. I think it might be the British Hesh round, which is fired from Challenger 2 t- tanks. It's a squash head round. So basically this big old shell gets hurled out of hurled out of a Challenger 2 tank uh, quite considerably faster than the speed of sound. And when it hits hits an opposition tank, uh, like a, the, the, a, an opposing tank, it doesn't penetrate like some of the other shells that are fired by other nations. But the, the, the explosive squashes against the edge of the tank and then detonates. And what this does is it sends a shockwave through the frame of the opposing tank. And once that shockwave hits the barrier between the, the steel and armor and the air inside, it creates a shattering effect on the inside of the tank. So you get all these little bits of a shrapnel torn off the inside of the shra- tank, pinging around at multiple times the speed of sound and you know the the, the concussive effects inside are, are meant to be immense as well so i think i mean i shouldn't really say it's cool because it, it, it sounds really quite horrendous but i think that might be my favorite bomb or explosive <laughs>
Yeah, I I didn't find any of that funny. So if we were going for funny, I don't think talking about people being torn apart inside of a tank. Yeah, no, in terms of... Um... <laughs> My favorite economy, I'm going to go with Micronesia. They, it's, it's not, well, it is a real economy. It, it's fishing and subsistence agriculture. It's very simple to understand, so the economist doesn't have to work very hard. It kind of sounds a little idyllic as well. I mean, I lived in London for years and worked in finance, which is, it's one way of living, living in the pod, as they say, and just feels that if you go to Micronesia and you go out and you catch a few fish, and then you come back to your like herb garden. It just seems kind of kind of different. So I'm going to go with the Federation of Micronesia. Okay. Well, that's a that's been a wonderful episode of multipolarity. We've all, I guess, learned something about each other. And it's time to close the box and put the toys away. So goodbye to <laughs> Andy Pandy and to um, Bill and Ben and let's reconvene next week. Please like and subscribe and leave a review if you'd like to. We are fresh from a huge victory. <laughs>